Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is an award-winning sports columnist for the New York Post. He's covered baseball since 1999. He's the author of numerous baseball-related books, including Amazing and the co-author of I'm Just Getting Started and Girardi, No Ordinary Joe. He is one of the absolute must-reads every morning. It is a pleasure to welcome back one of our favorite guests, Kevin Kernan, to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Kev. Hey, it's great to be with you again. It's always good talking to you. And, you know, before we talk baseball, you know, over the years, I've seen so many columnists transition from the papers to TV or radio. And over the years, sitting in a press box with you, I have found you to be one of the most knowledgeable, but even more than knowledgeable, just so entertaining and so engaging. Have you ever thought about TV and radio? Because you're one of those guys that really, to me, doesn't seek out. There are columnists that, like, look to be on. You don't look for that. But yet, I think you would be a natural at it. Yeah, thanks. See, I, I'm actually very good at it. When I was in San Diego, I had a radio show, uh, KFMB. Uh, I did it with Hank Bauer, the former football player, very successful show. Uh, I did that besides working for the UT. It was uh, pre and post Padres, and was also doing the uh, offseason at night. And uh, Hank was very good, too, because his strengths were football and golf. And I know football very well, but I don't know much about golf and the combination of us. You know, and the, here's the key. When we had guys on, we really listened to what they say, said. And we had, I remember one time we had Mark McGuire on, and uh, this is before, way before 98, obviously, because uh, I was in San Diego from uh, 88 to 97 covering the Padres. And he was talking to us, and uh, he was getting so emotional because at the time he was going through a divorce and uh, he was uh, separated from his son. He told us, I mean, one of the stories he told us was, you know, I miss my kids so much. I just go, sometimes I just go to the local school areas and just watch the kids play recess, you know, and uh, things like that. So, so we always try to bring out the best in our guests. And uh, I also did, for, for many years, did uh, ESPN, Cold Pizza, and First Take. And then there were some issues, uh, some political issues that evolved and uh, it went away. But maybe down the road, come back. Who knows? You know, it's interesting you said that about listening. And because one of your pieces, I don't remember what day it was. It was a great Q&A with Mickey Calloway. And you started it off, in my opinion, in something in an article I've never really seen. You, you, you brought Mickey's dad's profession as an engineer, into the context of how Mickey was going about the design and the construct of, of the team from an engineer's cons, you know, point of view. And Mickey's a pretty open guy, but I have to imagine that just the way you were able to get emotions out of McGuire, that that set up an entirely different tone for the interview. Yeah, exactly. First of all, it shows... And it's what I try to do in all my work. I spend time with people and listen to them and, and also do a little research. But I don't over-research it. But I knew through my conversation with Mickey last year, I'd, I'd asked him once about his dad, and he said he was a civil engineer. And you know how civil engineers think. They, they really, you know, they look at a problem and try to solve it. And uh, 
So that's why I thought it was a perfect opening for Mickey. Like, how are you going to look at this from, you know, the son of a civil engineer? How are you going to look at this to figure out what went wrong last year and what you can do to change to make yourself better? And it was a great entree into the uh, into the interview, as he said. And, uh, you know, that, that was, you know, I don't like to uh, twist too much of my pieces, but that was a really good piece because we really hit some hardcore things on what Mickey's got to do this year. And, and the second question I write to, uh, sometimes I like to get the, the toughest question out of the way about being on the hot seat. You know, yeah. uh, Brody's not his guy right this year, a new, new uh, GM. Although Brody's given them what he needed, and he's given, uh, he, he's really kind of worked very well with Mickey in the early going. And, and I, thought, uh, I thought Mickey was great with that. He did not, he did not uh, swerve to try to avoid the answer. He said, yeah, I'm definitely on the hot seat. We all are, and that's the way it should be. You know, and, and I think that's a great attitude now, especially when you hear so much these days about, oh, we're building for the future. We're, they don't say it, of course, but we're tanking. You know, <laughs> you know the, the Mets are doing the opposite. You know, we'll see where it goes. But there's a certain, uh, even with Noah Syndergaard, I was able to sit down with him this week and uh, got some great stuff out of Noah, got Todd Frazier. I always like to go to spring training a little early because I don't think spring training starts when the, the teams tell us it starts. It actually starts when ballplayers are at the uh, complex. And credit the Mets, they allow me to pretty much roam around pretty free and get to. I can't go in the clubhouse like I can during regular spring training, but I can pretty much pull a guy over if he wants to talk. And uh, that's that. That was the uh, basically the genesis of all the uh, I thought really interesting pieces I had this week. Well, you know what? Let, let's give him a little further kudos. He likes to get down to spring training early. Kevin was at Met Fantasy Camp. Uh, he was doing an article on Rod. So, but I, I walked by and I walked by. I go, Kevin. <laughs> so, how, how did I miss that? Then? Yeah. So, yeah, you were right. You were down there with me too. I wasn't there. So, so you know, well, one of the things too—not to digress, but and just for anyone listening, especially uh, in the business or trying to get into business—it's very important that your subject uh, kind of respects you a little bit. And I'm not afraid to be myself. And like I am in the press box, you know, I like I said. If, if I if I went in that direction, I, I I'm sure I would be successful at it with, uh, you know, uh, kind of like uh, really telling it like it is. But but when I was sitting talking to Saboda, and Saboda, you know, all the veterans are, you know, they're, they're a different breed of guy, but they will give you time if they respect you. And what was really funny, and I saw what really opened up for Ron was about four or five, including Mark, people came over not to talk to Ron but to talk to me. <laughs> Because I just showed up in the clubhouse that day, and they all and, and these are you know these are hardcore Mets fans. These are people who really know the Mets. I mean, so these aren't you know general. These are people that know what's going on. And about you know, and they all and a bunch of them came over. I just want to respect. I want how much I love reading you. Blah blah blah. So Sabota was looking at me. Finally, Sabota opened up. I think that's what got him to open up because he said, "Wow, these these fans really uh, these people really love me." Yeah. And 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 Sabota's credit too. And and when we say fantasy camp, a lot of people think it's just a bunch of guys, old guys going down there play. They take that seriously. It's real <laughs> baseball. And and I know Marty. I'm not telling anything. Uh, you know that that you don't know because you've been there. But there, this is serious baseball, and Sabota takes it seriously. Oh, yeah. He's the manager. He, he wanted his team to win. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. You know, that's one of the things that and, struck, struck me, because I was down there working with Mark for the book we're writing, and Fantasy Camp is uh, part of it, to see how serious Sabota in particular. And Duffy Dyer. And Duffy Dyer. And Duffy Dyer. Oh, my God. Yeah, Duffy, forget it. Yeah. And, and, one, and also with Sabota, I thought it was great about that piece. And, again, if people can find me at Where's Kernan. Yeah. 
Um, and you can just go to the post, Google my name, and these columns will come up. But I was talking to Mr. about the catch, and the most fascinating thing he told me, and I haven't read this in 50 years, so in my mind I got something that people haven't gotten in 50 years of talking about the catch. He said the reason he made that catch, he was telling me, was because and he actually dug the glove out of his locker. The glove was there. This is the glove that made the catch in the World Series. And he actually, he was telling me, he was showing me the glove, and he said, look at that palm. The palm of this glove, I've never had a glove with a palm like this glove. The, most palms, the ball hits there and pops out. This glove, it would stay. So I had, I had, you know, I was not afraid to make that, that dive to try to catch that, thinking even if I don't get it in the web, I'll get it in the palm, and it will stick. But then he goes, but 90% into the dive, I said, oh, and he said, you know, he said, oh, boy. Uh, you know, but it started with an S, and uh, he said I, he didn't think he was going to make it, but he made the catch, and it stuck in the water. That's how you have history. You know, and maybe it's me as a Met fan putting my own emotions into your words, but I get from you in these articles an overall sense of optimism. And it kind of, maybe I trace it back to Brody because I also, for, you know, I, I just think he's a breath of fresh air. But are you optimistic about this upcoming Mets season and, and what Brody brings to the table for them? I am right now, you know, because, uh, you know, he's brought some professional hitters. And, and, again, I had a long conversation with Brody as well. The first one away from the press conference when he retired, no one sat down with Brody like I sat down with him the other day. And one of the questions I asked them was, because I'm thinking, and again, I've been around forever, so I know it. So I said, Brody, you're, you're the Grimes agent. i got to think one of the first things you did when you took over was you spoke to Jake and said, Jake, what do we know, need most of all? And I'm sure Jake said, we've got to fix that bullpen. I can't tell you how many games we lost because of uh, the bullpen. And, of course, that's the first thing he did, and that was a message. But, but Brody made a great point to me that I didn't even think about. He said, you know what? You know, of course, he had his conversations with his guys, but don't forget, I was a season ticket holder last year. I was sitting right there. You know, he they have great seats right down by the on deck circle. I saw every game that was, uh, you know, every game where the bullpen couldn't finish it off, every game where the defense wasn't there, every game where they couldn't get the clutch it. So Brody, in many ways, and you talk about Mets fans, he's living the same life the Mets fans lived last year with those terrible losses when they should have been wins. So he knows what he had to do to clean it up. And, uh, you know, again, you're not going to get the Machado and Harper. It's just not that way with the Mets. But he did get a lot of professional players in here. And if they can do what the back of their baseball cards have done in the past, I think the Mets will be a lot better off. So here's the concern that I have about his moves. And Mark and I have talked a little bit about the year in the sure. past few weeks. You take a look. This is a sport that's gotten younger. It used to be if mm-hmm. you were 30, you were in your prime. Now 26 is your prime, and 30, you're getting onto the downslope. He went out and he hired people who are over 30. He's got an old team from Cano to Lowry to Ramos. And, and you look at that, and I'm very concerned that in the sport that's gotten younger, he once again has gone old. Does that bother you? It doesn't bother me as much right now because even the young guys get old sometimes when they're Mets. I mean, yeah. that's the way yeah. it is when you're a Mets. I mean, uh, remember how Jason Bay got old as soon as he hit yeah. that wall in L.A. Yeah. And, uh, we can yeah. go down the line. But I-, I think Cano has a couple of good years. I don't think he's going to turn into Robbie Alomar when he got here. Things like that. Well, guys Carlos Baerga. You know? right. Carlos Baerga, right then. That's old, old. Uh, Jed Larry. Here's what I can tell you about Jed Larry. The post last year sent me late in the year out to uh, the Angels-Oakland series. The Yankees were going to play Oakland. 
in the wild card game, so they wanted to get a head start. And I, I, I saw Oakland play four games. I watched Jed Larry all those games. His swing was on, man. It was on. He he hit in the, he hit in the more uh, fall balls that we just foul and rockets. He was trying to get his one thousand extra base hit or something, so he was really looking for it. But he looked to me like he's still got something left. Todd Burks, we've got a lot to prove. I agree with you there. And I've done Todd since he was 12 years old. And I think Todd is going out there to share. If he gets, you know, the whole thing with these guys, they say healthy. But some of these guys all do. But, you know, Ed, Edwin Diaz is the perfect age. He's got 91 saves the last few years. That, to me, is a that's a difference maker right there. Uh, you have McNeil, who is still, you know, McNeil's young. He can fill in a couple spaces. You, you, uh, Conforto's 26, Nemo's young. So you do have some older players. Ramos, will his knees hold up? That's why you got to make sure. That's why they signed Mezzarocco the other day. That's you know. That's why maybe Darnell, maybe Darnell's best thing is to be a backup. You know, maybe too much was expected from him from day one when he came into you know when he was a big time uh, with the Phillies and then Toronto and all the injuries slowed him down. So maybe he's got the best. So at least in my mind, and I could be totally wrong here, but in my mind they actually have some cover this year. Where last year they had no cover. If Todd Frazier went down, which he did, you had nobody there. The lineup was so off, the suspect of being hurt killed them. Uh, so there was no cover anywhere. At least I think this year they have a little bit of cover. And um, it's definitely a concern, but I'm, I'm not overly concerned at this point. You know, you mentioned three guys, and, and I'm just wondering how these three guys are going to coexist. And I agree with you. I, I like Todd Frazier, and I think he's a great clubhouse guy, and, and I think it's important to have him. When they got Jed Lowry, I'm saying... Mm, you know, a that is going to push you know Frazier, and obviously he, one of those two guys can go over uh, first base if you know Alonzo doesn't work out. But between Lowry, McNeil, and Frazier, how do those mm-hmm. three coexist on the roster? And which one of those is going to you know one of them is going to get short shrift because it, it, you can't possibly play all three a, a, a tremendous amount. Which of those three is going to be like somewhat of the odd man out when it comes to playing time? Well, McNeil, without a doubt. But McNeil also gives them coverage in case Nemo can't really make the adjustment and do as well as he did last year for, for most time. And um, uh, I think um, the fact that they're moving McNeil out there tells you that. Now, now Frazier, I think, is under the gun. He's got to come through because I think they really think they think a lot of Larry, and I know the guys in the clubhouse do. So uh, Alonzo, his problem will be defense. Can he play major league defense? Can he handle major league pitching? If he doesn't, you, again, you have Frazier at first base, uh, and then you got Larry at third. Here's the other point that I want to make. The Mets are going a little bit more analytical. I met, I met the assistant GM, who's kind of more of the analytical guy, Adam Guthridge. Um, and um, they're going to do more, I think. You're going to see more lineups like, okay, and, and Mickey made this point to me as well. He wants to make sure that the lineups are all discussed well, and they know four or five days in advance. So, you know, uh, Jed, you're going to pay. You're going to play these first two games against Atlanta at third base because we know you hit this guy and this guy well. Blah blah blah. So I think they're going to have more of a game plan uh, going in with a lineup and and uh, and try to get as to get, putting the guys in the best situations. Now my only question with that, playing devil's advocate and also being around baseball forever, what happens if Todd Frazier's on fire? You know, because he gets in those hot streaks and he's he's hitting the heck out of the ball. And he's coming to a series where they want to put Larry in there because he, he matches up better in the past, but better numbers against a certain guy. So that, see, to me, that's the missing ingredient. And that's where Alex Cora 
to me, is different than most managers. And that's why he did such a great job uh, last year with the Red Sox beating the Yankees because Alex plays both ends. He, he figures the numbers, but he also knows this guy's hot. He's staying in here. And also he plays some hunches. So uh, I think that's, that's the hurdle the Mets have to jump, and that's what they have to figure out. But you know what the great thing about that is? It'd be great if they're all doing well because for, for a change, the Mets will have too much talent, and you, you never hear that. So, so if you've got to squeeze uh, three guys into two positions and all three guys are playing well, that's a good thing. See, now that observation alone on Cora is why I really – and I said it in yeah. the beginning – this is why we need more. Ca- you, you listen. There's only so much he can write in a day. Yeah. But you, exactly. you, you give him an open mic. It's like, it's like, <laughs> so, so one of the things you mentioned in one of your articles was, you know, through Mickey, was that the Met, you're going to see a lot more traditional baseball with the Mets. More hit and run. More situational hitting. Mm-hmm. More steals as the Mets now have more sp- uh, speed. Throw in the fact that they now have the anti-launch angle philosophy of new hitting coach Chili Davis. Do you think the mm-hmm. Mets are a type of team that's almost like a throwback to a team that can beat you in multiple ways? They can beat you Is with a long ball. Is it a throwback ball. to set the new standard, to move well, away well, from launch angle? Is well, that, it's a uh, throwback yeah, where they can beat you with the long ball. They yeah. can beat you with little ball. They're going to beat you with pitching. Yeah. I mean, are they going to be like one of those teams that we grew up loving that, you know, in any given day, you know, they'll beat you 11-1 or they'll beat you in a 2-1 by, you know, a walk, a steal, a sacrifice, and a sacrifice fly? That's who they want to be. Will they be? We'll see. That's the plan, though, and I think, um, I think that's, 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 that's the way to go these days. I really do believe that's the way to go, and I think Chili Davis is, is already – I talked to three – at Conforto, by the way, I got to drop this in, had a long conversation with him yesterday. He's, he's relaxed. He's healthy. He's fun to be around. Uh, he's going to segue into your clubhouse leader, there's no doubt in my mind. He's going to take the right spot. Um, and he would have done it earlier, but you can't do it when David Wright is still there, even if David Wright's not playing. So that's what they want the Mets to be. They want to be create those runs, especially with that pitching staff. Because as Todd told me, if we get four or five runs with this pitching staff, are you <laughs> kidding me? We're going we're to win so many games. And I think that's the philosophy. Um, and Chile, they've all talked to Chile. Chile's not going to get in their way and change who they are as hitters, but he does want to make sure they do situational hitting better. And this was not Pat Rossler's fault in my mind. This was the way Sandy Olson built a team of launch angle home run guys. That's who they were. You know, it worked in 2015. It didn't work, uh, you know, the preceding years. So Pat can't change a hitter who he is into something else. Jay Bruce could not change. And Jay Bruce really, if you, if you step back and look at it, Jay Bruce's year last year set the tone for defeat for the Mets. Mm. He just had a dreadful year right. all around, right from the start, and never got out of it. So, so, so I think they're, they're thinking now they can, they can do more things, create more things. And we haven't even mentioned his name yet, but we should. Jim Rivelman is going to help Mickey yeah. Calloway tremendously. Jim I've known for uh, since the late 80s, and uh, he's a tremendous baseball guy. He, he's the bench coach they didn't have last year. Nothing against Gary G. Sarcina, but they, they, this was a flaw right from the beginning with Sandy's team last year. Um, Sandy brought in a couple guys, you know, a new manager and a bench coach, both from the American League. Come on, you got to have a National League influence here. It's common sense. It's not that hard. And I, I, I'm not picking on Sandy, but I have my issues with Sandy because I think Sandy was very good at some of the trades he made, some of the things that happened. He, but I think, and also, let's face it, Sandy had a terrible time emotionally last year right. being sick, and he had a battle through all that. Thank God he has. 
and I think he's in a much better situation now in Oakland. But, you know, he wasn't – Mickey had to do everything last year. Uh, and, and, and by that I mean, like, when they're sending a player down, it was Mickey who had to bring the player in and say you're going down pretty much. So there was way too much on his plate. They were talking nutrition with Mickey, worrying about what the players were eating, all the stuff they shouldn't be worrying about. This year is more like Mickey, go out there and manage, do it right, listen to Jim Rickleman, and you'll be better off. So right there you have a difference in um, philosophy. And one other thing I want to, before I forget, and slips my mind, to me, Brody, one of the most interesting things he said, and I mentioned this to him yesterday when we just spent around talking, when I did the article on him the other day, uh, it was kind of buried in the article because I had so much good information. Again, I only had 670 words there. So, But one of the things he said was, we work for the players. The players don't work for us. Now, that's a radical change in how you run a team and GMing. And that's why Noah told me a few days earlier, nope, we haven't seen a GM like Brody Van Wagen yet in the majors. This guy's going to redo the position with social uh, being on social media, how he's treating players. Taking batting now, practice. <laughs> yeah, taking batting practice. By the way, the players were just... To me, they were ripping Brody's swing, saying that, you know, what's that, a seven-hopper through the hole? Uh, they, they couldn't believe he actually, uh, you know. So I, so they were having some fun with Brody. But just the fact that he put himself out there taking batting practice and doing all those little things. So it's either going to work or it's going to be a grand experiment that blows up and uh, you're going to give these players even more power and it's not going to work. But I think with DeGrom now uh, kind of like super established, I think they'll follow his lead from the pitching, and I think uh, I think you have a pretty serious clubhouse. Yeah, and you had a great article on Stephen Matz, also. And you know, you said 670 words in in somewhere in about 660 uh, words, which kind of inspired me a little bit because AJ and I have talked about this. And one guy I wanted to bring in was uh, well, the guy we really wanted to bring in was Nick Markakis, but we knew that yeah. wasn't going to be happening. But a guy that I really liked leadership wise and, and maybe fills a void for them was Adam Jones. But you had a, a line at the end where you said that Lagaris has uh, had some pretty impressive batting practice sessions. Hopefully this is a year where he finally stays healthy. He play, you mentioned he played about 10 games in winter ball to prepare after last season's toe surgery. Do you think the Mets are covered in case he isn't the Juan Lagares that we always envisioned him being with Broxton? Or do you think there's still a chance that if the market falls you know, low enough for a guy like Jones, he could possibly Or be how here? much are they just biding time and hoping Cespedes comes back mid-year, and that's, that's the spot? That yeah, well, Cespedes, I believe, we'll start with him. With him... Um, kind of like his uh, career on hold. He's going to have to at some point come back. But he, I heard he's, the rehab is going really well. And I've heard from a number of different people that they expect him back at uh, some point in the second half of the season. So um, I, myself, from the time the injury happens, that's going to be later than they expect. And I'm still holding to that because I just know Seth's for his personality. Now, he's going to want to get back to establish a market again for for Yo, you know that's what he wants to do. So in that way, when they do get him back, they're going to get him back in the right mental frame of mind, where he's not pulling people down like I think he did last year. So I think that'll be a positive. Um, I I really believe that they, they they like Ligaris, and uh, from what I've seen early spring, um, you know, he, if you remember, he revamped the swing last year. He was doing okay before he got hurt, and to me, he seems even better now with the swing. And, and there's not as much pressure on him or Todd because there's more hitters above them now so they can 
segue down a little bit, and that's where Conforto comes in, of course, in Cano, three and four. Uh, and Jed Lowry probably about his second, um, and Nimmo leading off. So that's your top four right there. So I don't think there's as much pressure on Ligaris, and I think uh, from what I've seen of him, um, I, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty pumped about Ligaris at this point right now, unless he goes completely off the cliff. And uh, like I was busting his chops, I said, you know, try not to, you know, Try not to get one of these bizarre injuries that you always get, you know, uh, rolls over on his thumb. But, you know, he, it's, it's, he did say, you know, that's how I play. I play hard. And even with that toe, you know, he had no clue. He runs into the wall, and what happened was the toe got stuck underneath. Right. The, that part of his spike. And he pulled down thinking he's pulling out the spike, and he actually yeah. tore the ligament. Oh, yeah, that's how that all happened. Toe. And then he actually didn't think it was that bad, but by the end of the inning, he knew it was bad. So, so. Broxton will give them more defensive cover. You know, I think Broxton could be there for a couple positions. Uh, but I think it's Ligaris' job to lose, uh, to lose right now. And just knowing Brody and what we've seen, some of the moves they've made, they I would not count them out on, obviously, the big guys, but I would not count them out on making, you know, a small move here or there right down the road. I think you're going to see... You're going to see guys get a chance, and um, and that's a good way to go because he's going to keep the pressure on the other players. But but right now, Lagares, I he hit a ball in that field two, and Mark and you guys know this field two. That's where they work out on. And I've been watching batting practice there forever. He hit a ball into the pine trees, into the top of the pine trees. When he hit it, a bunch of this like cloud of pollen came out of the pine trees. You know, I haven't seen a ball hit like that there. I don't think ever. So. So, uh, you know, he again, it's batting practice. I'm not getting Tim Tebow on you, <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, it's definitely uh, – Ligaris needs the breakthrough for Ligaris and the money they gave him. Because it always seems like the guys the Mets figured to sign long-term, those were the guys that got hurt. So it, I wrote a column, I think it was February, early February in 2016. I remember sitting with DeGrom. We sat up by the minor league clubhouse, and I wrote a column that day saying the Mets should sign DeGrom for an extended contract for the next five, six years. It would save them, save them so much money. Could you imagine if they actually listened to me and did that? DeGrom would be signed right now for less than $50 million, wow. <laughs> and, and, and what a deal it would be for the Mets. Oh, my God. But they, never listen. they don't listen to me, so what can I tell you? Kevin, okay. thanks so much for your time tonight. We really yeah. appreciate it. See you soon. I'll read you sooner. Okay, appreciate it. Great being out, you guys. You Take got care. Kevin Kern in New York so. Post.